This weekend we have uh, the definitive Jewish narrative of collective transformation. Sounds grand. We have this week. This portion is bow. It begins in uh, on page three hundred and fifty-five of those books that you all have. If you have the green one, it's. Exodus chapter 10, and it is, um, it is the defining story of the sort of mythic beginnings of Jewish peoplehood, I would say. It's the story of the Exodus. This is when it happens, this week's Torah portion, really. It's the story of the Exodus. The story of the Exodus is what we have... Um, taught, and for centuries, millennia, the kind of dividing point between the Jewish people as family and the Jewish people as people, as a peoplehood, as a community, as a nation. Am Yisrael. Am Yisrael, the Jewish people, doesn't happen until after the Exodus. Before that, it's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Sarah, and Rebecca, and Rachel, and Leah, and their kids, and their kids fighting, basically, and to see who's going to be the, who's going to inherit, you know, the spiritual inheritance and the physical inheritance as well, and (coughs) ending with um, the trek down to, um, to Egypt of Jacob and his sons, following Joseph, of course, and their beginning of, uh, they're flourishing there for a while. And then the book of Exodus comes along and we have a new king arise who knows not Joseph. And we end up with several hundred years of enslavement leading up to today in the Torah, this Shabbat in the Torah portion, where we have the denouement of those pyrotechnics of Moses and God in this um, contest between God and Pharaoh. Yes, dear. Do you think for siblings today, modernly, who really don't have a reason to argue, but they argue like hell, it's it's from from years ago? It's genetic. Genetic? Yes. I mean, it's like if they hadn't been arguing in biblical times, we wouldn't have that carried over? No, it's the other way around. It's that they argued in biblical times for the same reasons that they argue today because they're siblings, and that's what siblings do, is they argue. Um, you know, they don't even have and, they and whoever they are. And, and I would back up one step even farther and say it's human nature to be insecure. That doesn't mean you'd argue, though. It's human nature to be insecure, and therefore, one of the one of the effects of natural human insecurity is the jockeying for attention, for uh, validation, for, uh, and I think power is all about validation still and acknowledgement and here I am, somebody notice me, pay attention to me. Uh, Power is just an adult version or a child's version of Trying to not be invisible, trying, wanting to be seen, that what people want is to be seen and to know they exist. It's just the most fundamental level of humanity of what it means to be a person and the, and the fragility of what it, emotional, ego, psychological, 
and physical fragility of being a human being. I mean, look at humans, babies, versus animal babies that they throw out of the nest and, you know, and parents, you know, drop their foals and walk away or whatever they do. They don't exactly do that. But, you know, lots of animals that, in fact, they literally do that. You know, a kid gets born and what, there's no parent-child relationship beyond a few moments with lots of animals in the world and you're out on their own. Boom, go, you know. Kick them out of the nest, learn to fly. We have these little helpless things that we can't kick out of any nest or they die. These little helpless things that are totally 100% dependent on an adult taking care of that child for years. Years. No animals do that. Years we do that. So because of how, I think, because of how fragile and weak and we are, and part of that, what grows, comes with that, is the emotional realization of how fragile you are, how dependent you are, you know, and the process of growth, which is separation, you know, um, ego uh, separation, identification, trying to figure out how to create your own personality, leave your parents. You, you don't do that at three, I mean, unless you're forced but to. The other side of that coin is sometimes it sets up with the parents or who's ever raising the baby, they have trouble letting go. Of course, yes, to- yes. So, but that's all part of the human, that's what's, what's slightly different about humans than most animals. I mean, primates have similar issues. I mean, we're primates of one kind or another. So, you know, primates have similar familial, communal issues, and they stick around with the community. They don't throw their little kids out, you know, chimpanzees, and say, go off and farm your own chimpanzee thing either, generally. Um, I mean, you know, I'm not an expert in it, but for sure primates mirror us much more than any other animal in the animal kingdom. So, uh, but the sibling rivalry issue, which is what you raised, I, I went where I went because I think it's built into the human need, the neediness of human beings to feel validated and existing and seen and heard. And it's why when you, you know, parenting classes and all those things, uh, when you wrestle with parenting issues, one of the the things that most parents will tell you is that the the worst thing they can do to their kid is to ignore their child. You know, it's the freaks kids out more than anything else is to be ignored. Um, even if you're hit, not that anyone should hit, but even if you're hit, one of the reasons kids act out to be hit is because, oh, I'm here. <laughs> oh, I, I, I know literally, physically, I'm here. I exist. You see me. You hit me, you see me. We have a relationship, maybe a dysfunctional one, but we have a relationship. I know I'm here. I know I exist. I mean, I know it sounds a little crazy sometimes, but it's, you know, why it's part of the, the think about the um, death and funerals and grief is where my mind goes, and little ribbons that we tear. Okay, why do we tear these little ribbons? So people are supposed to be your clothes. So, one thing is it's a symbol. People know you're in mourning. Oh, they see you have a ribbon. But we tear that because it's a substitute for tearing your clothes. Because the tradition was, you know, you tore your clothing when you, as a sign of mourning. And you walk I mean, around. In what particular right? way would you tear your clothes? You go like this, right? Tear this or tear a shirt. Just tear it. So it's, and then you'd wear it. When was that stopped? 
it's, it's not stopped in the, in the Orthodox community. It's stopped in the liberal communities because we, in the 20th century, people wanted to be more uh, discreet, classy, I don't know, whatever. So instead of walking around with torn clothes, they would have this symbolic ribbon that would be, wouldn't look so nasty as you're tearing your clothes and walking around with torn shirts. However, what, where'd the torn shirt come from? We will get to the Torah, but where'd the torn shirt come from? Why tear your shirt? Tear your shirt is also a substitute. For the same thing? For what? Tearing yourself. Yes. Killing tearing your shirt your is a substitute for hurting your, tearing yourself, your skin, your body, causing yourself pain and, and tearing it yourself. The Torah says don't gash yourself, specifically, somewhere in Leviticus. Don't gash yourself because people, yes, because people in the midst, in the throes of profound grief go numb among other things, right. go physically, literally. Right. I mean, right. many of you have experienced that. You just sort of shut down. You go numb. And one of the responses that is a not unnatural human response to that profound grief numbness is hurting yourself so you feel again. Literally tearing at your skin. That's what people used to do. People do it today. People do it all the time. Smash your head against the wall. People do things to feel they hurt themselves rather than say, you know, punch me. They go, literally, they hit their heads against the wall. They do all kinds of things to feel because they're, they're, they don't know what to do with all that emotion. And it's a way of it's exactly like girls cutting themselves. Boys, for some reason, don't cut themselves, but girls do. It's, it's literally the same kind of process that girls who cut themselves do it because it's an emotional release. It's like pushing a, sticking a pin in a, in a balloon that all of a sudden you, you feel and, you, and, and the emotion gets connected to, to your physicality. It's very, human beings are complex, but in any event, that was, and of course the reasons from the Torah is the same reason lots of, most things from the Torah, which is, that is the reason that the prohibition against doing it is in the Torah, don't gash yourself, is because it was a normal pattern that other people did. And so we want to do everything different from everybody else. Everybody, yeah, a lot of Canaanites people in the ancient, that was a natural thing. They would cut themselves or they would gash themselves or they would put tattoos on of certain names of gods. They would whip, yeah, whip, yeah, right. Exactly, uh, the whole, what were those things called? Flagellation. Flagellation, yeah, self-flagellation. You would, you know, they have all these interesting tools you can see for how you could, you know, as a way of, of uh, piety, a, a sort of symbolic piety, you would beat yourself up in front of God. I'm willing to do anything for you, God, instead of including hurt myself. So, um, in, in Jewish tradition, biblical tradition, but one of the underlying themes of the Torah consistently is don't do what everybody else does. Separate ourselves out. And am segula. Am segula is not just chosen people, it's really separated out distinct people. And so we have kosher laws. Don't eat this because they eat that. Don't eat that because they eat that. So, you know, and if you don't eat, if you can't eat with them, you're not going to marry them. If you're not going to marry them, you won't disappear and become them. You know, one of our, one of our, one of our members told me yesterday that her, um, 
niece just got married, and um, her niece, whose grandfather was a cantor, just got married to a Muslim and converted to Islam. So, and, and, and none of her family were at the wedding, and it was this whole Muslim wedding with just his side of the family because everybody freaked out. And, a good meal. And, yeah, <laughs> missed whatever. And she was freaking out and whatever because her niece became a Muslim. Um, you know, we have this visceral response to us versus them, whoever the us is and whoever the them is. It's also sort of built into human, human consciousness as, you know, my team versus your team. It's the kings versus the whoever. I don't know. I don't follow that sport, but whatever. I don't follow any sports. But, you know, everybody's sort of, it's us versus them. And, and the Torah is filled with us versus them. And today is one of those big us versus them days in the Torah. I knew I'd get back there eventually. So here we have the last three plagues out of the ten plagues. Here we have the defining plagues that really push Pharaoh over the edge. And here we have the great dilemma, the great ethical dilemma of the whole deliverance of the Exodus. One of two of the great ethical dilemmas of the Exodus. This is one, next week is the next one. Is it next week? Yeah, next week. Next week, because next week we actually go across the sea and then everybody... You know, all the Egyptians get wiped out, and that's the other ethical dilemma. Um, it's a smaller ethical dilemma, because they're actually coming after us to kill us, but, you know, evidently so. But in any event, this week's ethical dilemma of the, the issue of Pharaoh's heart, hardening of Pharaoh's heart, and God taking credit for it. And, in fact, if you look at 357, where we actually start, the first <clears throat> verse of chapter 10... And God said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his courtiers. Right? God takes credit. God claims, I did it. I hardened Pharaoh's heart. And every reader ever since has gone, Well, how do you blame Pharaoh if God hardened his heart? You know, poor Pharaoh. What if he wanted to let? Otherwise, maybe he would have let the people go. But God gets involved. It's like straw man. God sets up the straw man and knocks him down. God sets up Pharaoh and hardened his heart and the hearts of his couriers. And why? Why did God harden? Question number one. Would have been a different story. Why did God? Which is true. That is the real reason. So that we would be liberated. So that. And how do we get liberated? By leaving Egypt. And how do we leave Egypt then? Crossing the Red Sea. Yes. So what makes us, what gives us the strength, the courage, the whatever, to leave, to get liberated? I mean, how, what, what did the physical liberation look like? Well, you're not worried about your kids being killed, your sons. Because? Because that's what would be happening. Ah, so making reference to what the Pharaoh had decreed earlier, in the beginning of our story, remember, Pharaoh says, let's kill all these boys. We're going to kill all the boys. Tells all the midwives, if those Israelite women give birth, if it's a boy, drown them. 
It's a girl, let him live. Let her live. It's a boy, drown him, right? And in this twist of irony and uh, payback and retribution, we have what Pharaoh decreed against the Israelites happened to, in fact, the Egyptians, right? Going to kill all these boys, and instead it's the firstborn of the Egyptians who die. Instead, what Pharaoh decreed essentially ends up happening to his own people. And so perhaps because of the drama of that 10th plague, which is what pushed Pharaoh over the edge to say, go, leave, and essentially throw up his hands in, in defeat, who defeated Pharaoh? God. Uh, people who would have to have faith and believe in a God to leave, right? Or they would have stayed there. So, the ones who did. Finish the rest of the sentence. Someone read the rest of, after I have hardened his heart in the hearts of his courtiers, comma, now we get the why. It starts in order. That I may display these, my signs among them, and that you may recount in the hearing of your children and of your children's children how I made a mockery of the Egyptians, how I displayed my signs among them, in order that you may know that I am Adonai. Mm-hmm. So what, why, according to the Torah, now according to God, since God's talking to Moses, God said to Moses the following quote. Okay, go back to Pharaoh, because now it's, I've set him up. I hardened his heart, the hearts of his courtiers, and tells Moses why. What's the why? So why did God do this? The why is of the people. It says here in order to know that he is God. So that everybody will know. And 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 so that you can trust. uh, It allows you to have the courage to go. So... That people will know I who I am. They will recount my name, my glory, my wonders, my great victory over Pharaoh to their children and to their children's children. Yeah. It's a test for Mickey. Moses also. He's got a He's got to have been petrified going into the unknown. Yeah. Big test for Moses. Well, the whole thing is a test for Moses, right? The whole, the whole story is a, is, a, is a gigantic constant test for Moses, stepping into, starting with, you know, hearing God's voice out of a burning bush, and then being willing to go back to Pharaoh, being willing to go back to, and then go back and go back and go back and go back and go back, and go back right? <laughs> And here, the last time, Pharaoh said, you know, I don't want to see you anymore. Anyway, the last time around, I don't want to see you anymore. So, it, and let alone before he even gets out into the 40 years of wandering that he doesn't know is going to be 40 years when he starts out. Right? So everyone's being tested. But the point is that God tells in the very opening sentence of the whole chapter, of this whole section of Bo that the reason that God is creating all these wonders and doing this 
final devastating plague is so that it's so big and so powerful and so dramatic and so horrendous that we'll never forget. Who, who, who will never forget? Yeah, and that's why we have so many movies about it, you see. So, you know, who's going to never forget? Who does God care about will never forget? The Hebrews who were there and their children. You so that, you know, that you will tell your child on that day. And that's what we do every year over and over again. This is the Passover experience, the Passover story, the defining moment of Jewish history. It's, it's pre-Exodus and post-Exodus. All of Jewish history is pre-Exodus and post-Exodus. It's where we started when I first started talking a little earlier. It's we grow up as a family and all of a sudden we become Am Yisrael after this experience. Yeah. All that you were saying about the need for people to be seen. Yes. It's here. Yes. God Poor little God. Wanting to needs be to be seen. Seen as God. This you see? Perfect. That's why the Torah starts by saying human beings are made but sell Elohim in God's image, even God's insecure image. <laughs> because if, in fact, that's the reality. One of the fundamental realities of human existence is the desire to be seen and heard, to, to know you exist. And it's the nature of humanity. How do we know we exist? How do we know we exist? How do you know? Yes, you only know you exist in reality because of other people. It's other people who tell you how you exist and who you are, and it's their feedback to you. You are a fantastic person. Oh, thank you. You know? Or you imagine getting up and talking and everybody ignoring you in a group, right? I mean, all you have to do is be a teacher, right? You know what that's like. You get up, you start talking to a class, and they're like, hello, you know, and, and no one's paying any attention to you. It's, or imagine, you know, I get up on Friday night or get up in front of, like, you know, to give a talk, and everyone just starts schmoozing with each other and ignoring you. You start talking. How you internalize and feel about yourself, because we take our cues, that's how we're trained, that's how we grow up, from babies. That's what happens when babies do whatever and see what happens. See what the reaction is. That's why babies become instant, you know, expert manipulators because they gauge the reaction of the whoever's around them, and then they know. Okay, if I do that, they do this. If I do that, they don't. You know, and it depends on how parents react. Do you pick the child up when the child cries? Do you not pick the child up? If you pick the child up, then every time the child wants to get picked up, they'll cry because it's just human nature. If you don't, they'll figure out something else. They got to figure out something because everybody wants to be touched, held. Known that that's the other way. That's what we talked about being touched. Even if it's hit me, then I know I'm here because here I am. Someone there's some contact with me, and that's a f so fundamental that that grew out of your question about sibling rivalry. That it's part of why siblings have rivalry because it's the f nature of human beings to need to be needy and to need validation and acknowledgement. And, and, to, and to not be, and to want to take care, not to be displaced by other siblings. Yeah. And that's the story of Joseph. It's the story of everybody. It's the story of every family, and it's the story of every, of ev certainly of all of the patriarchs at every stage, of of, of in every generation down to everybody, down to Solomon, actually. 
um, in our little Jewish story of biblical story where Solomon ends up being king. You know, it's always the, which is part of the drama of the 10th plague, by the way, because the 10th plague is about the firstborn, and there's something always allegedly special about the firstborn. We institutionalize that in Jewish life with uh, that lovely ceremony that hardly anybody does anymore, Pidyon Haben, which somebody just called me to see if I would go do. Where you get the silver? At their house, yes, for five shekels of silver, whatever. I said, it's $500 coins. No. Um, you know, the, and the tradition of the fast of the firstborn the day before Pesach, and there's, there's certain acknowledgments of, and the whole idea that, that as a result, God says all the firstborn belong to me. Firstborn people, firstborn animals, firstborn everything is mine because I saved the firstborn on that Leil Shmurim, on that night of watching, and, and said we have Passover and passed over their houses. And um, so that, that need, that human need, which has nothing to do with any particular culture, group, language, um, or religion, is manifested in, in the whole, throughout the whole story of uh, all of our stories and the whole biblical narrative. Rabbi, yeah. Did you say there's a custom where the firstborn uh, fast? Fast, yeah. There's a traditional custom where firstborn fast. Well, not a, nobody does it, That's but some people don't do it. Most people don't do it. But yes, there's a, a Jewish tradition of the fast of the firstborn, uh, out, which is, makes sense out of gratitude for I didn't get killed in Egypt. You know, God passed over us and, and redeemed us. Yeah, Mickey, you look like you have your hand up. Oh. When you pay the 500... Uh, five shekels, yeah. Five shekels. When the kid becomes a teenager, you get the money back? <laughs> yeah, right. My family. After bar mitzvah. That's what all those bar mitzvah gifts are, trying to make up for the five shekels. Yes. Wasn't it the pinya bin um, for certain, like the cones? The cones? Well, you need a cohen. If you were not a cohen... No, it was the other way. The, 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 the Kohanim are the ones who got the five shekels. And theoretically, the priests come. It's a, and in theory, you, you give these five shekels to a priest. We don't have priests. We have Some people have priests. Yes. I never understood when the Hebrews were leaving Egypt, um, is there much missioner about... Did Pharaoh say, take everything you want, just go? I mean, where did they get all the gold, the silver, and the copper for the tabernacle? Or they just took it? Or how did they even have time to just take it? The Egyptians were so generous. It says they went with the gold and silver of the Egyptians. But they wouldn't have had it. I mean, slaves would have had it. They gave it to them. On the way out, they're handing them all this stuff? That's what it says. On the way out, they took it. They borrowed it. (laughs) It was sort of like... We've been working a really long time. I think we should get paid now. 430 so years of... Borrow, that was their compensation. 30, 430 years of work. I think we should get paid now. So they took it. It's and one, it's one of the other interesting to, ethical dilemmas of the exodus. they were exodus. told to take everything to increase their ne- wanting to leave because they could take everything? It's... Well, well, the Egyptians were going to go after them, and they figured they'd probably be getting get it back. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it's like everything else in the Torah, like most things in the Torah. The text is very terse, and without long explanation, it just said they went with, it says in this week's report, you can find it, 
Someone could find it in here where it says they walked out with with the uh, goods, all the stuff from the Egyptians, which they took. Um, uh, let me find it. Here we go. Turn to page 367, since you all have the green book. Verse 33. This is after the 10th plague. In the middle of the night, go to 29. In the middle of the night, God struck down all the male firstborn of the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on the throne, and the firstborn of the captive, who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the cattle, everything. Pharaoh rose in the night with all his courtiers and all the Egyptians, because there was a loud cry in Egypt. Which is interesting, by the way, um, because it says um, there was a loud tsa'aka gedola. There was a tsa'aka gedola, a great cry in Egypt. So, just for a moment, what do you th- imagine that cry sounded like? The wailing. What was the great cry in Egypt? The Egyptians losing all their goods? Mm, not yet. People were dying. Yeah, who was dying? Firstborn. Firstborn. Firstborn children. Everybody's child. Everybody that had a child had a child die. Everybody who had a child had a child die. I mean, just to pause for a moment and think about what the story is saying. Some of you know, unfortunately, that experience. Nothing more devastating than the death of a child. Every family in Egypt had a child die. Whoever was the firstborn, if they only had one child, that child died. If they had more than one child, their firstborn died. Every Egyptian family in the entire country, according to this story, suddenly in one night had a child die. Just... It's just impossible to imagine, really, because we just sort of say it and we skip over it and we read it and we blah, blah, blah. To stop for a moment and get into sort of an emotional connection with what that really would be like in, this, in the real world if, you know, every house in the Palisades one night suddenly had somebody, a child die in it. It's like, oh my God, literally, what would it feel like, what you would hear, the cry, Tsa'aka Gedola, a great giant cry would, went up to the land and Pharaoh heard, Pharaoh had his own son die, and then heard his entire country screaming and in mourning, in grief in horror, all at the same moment, all at the same night, you know. And it seemed that they were fearful that it wasn't going to stop with one. What do they know? It says we shall all be dead. Yeah, what do they know? Imagine. First of all, what happened just before this? I just skipped over the last three, the last three plagues. What was the plague right before this? I skipped over. This, the last three plagues were in this week's Torah portion. So the ninth plague is darkness. This was terrifying. Not only is it darkness because, as with some of these, it's related to uh, Egypt, 
and Egyptian worship because Egyptians worship Ra, the sun god. So for our god, who's the real god, Adonai yud hey vav hey, to show God's power over the fake Egyptian gods, one of the ways our god did that was turn out the lights because they worship the sun. Sorry, <coughs> darkness. Only, only for you guys. It was the light where the Hebrews were. It was dark everywhere else. So dark, they couldn't see the person next to them. Absolute, you know, pitch black darkness terror. Who's afraid of the light? Who's afraid of the dark? <laughs> Everybody's afraid of the dark. So all of a sudden, it was total darkness. This is about fear. This is terrorism. This is about fear, terror, horror. It's a horrible story. Unless you're the good guys. Unless you're the guys who win. Then it's like, yay, we were slaves and we got free. But when you think about the price, that's why I say it's filled with moral dilemmas and challenges. At what price freedom? It's always at what price freedom. Look at what, how much we spend on our defense budget every year. Look at all the things we do with drones and this and that and whatever. At what price freedom? That we give up, what freedoms we give up to have freedom. That all of the stuff, the security and all the things we now are putting up with and live with and deal with, the post 9-11 fear that we have, that's at what price freedom? This is a whole story about freedom and at what price freedom? And when you pause to imagine being on the other side, innocent Egyptians, what did they do? Yeah, some of them were taskmasters and bad guys and whatever, but the whole country wasn't, you know? And part of the lesson in the Torah always, and sometimes it's explicit, certainly the rabbis midrashically make it explicit periodically throughout the Torah. They did it with the Korach rebellion, same thing. They wiped out all of Korach's men, women, and children. And in that rebellion, the earth opened up, swallowed everybody up who was part of the Korach band, not just the warriors and the guys who were standing up going, you know, we're going to fight Moses. They're, it says specifically in the Torah, their women, their children, their families all got wiped out. And the rabbis asked, how could God do that? How could, what lesson are you supposed to learn from that? And one of the lessons in the Midrash was that the actions of <coughs> leaders affect the whole community. Everybody ends up. We are all victimized by what leaders do, one way or another, positively, negatively. We're all affected. And when you're the leader, you, it's not just you that has consequences of what you do. You affect the whole society. We're all integrated. We're all related. We're all connected. Well, that's what a, being part of a community is. And that's one of the lessons that, that rabbinic commentators draw from the whole Korach story. And here it is again. All of Egypt, every poor soul struggling to make a living in Egypt suddenly had a child die because of this cosmic fight. Because the whole story here, remember, this is our mythic beginnings of, as a people. This story is a cosmic story. It is a struggle between gods. Or what looks like a struggle between gods. And our Torah version is, it's a struggle between God and the fake God that's called Pharaoh, who pretended to be God, acted like God, said he was God, was worshipped like God, and treated like God in Egypt. 
That was part of what Pharaoh got to be. Pharaoh got to be God in Egypt. And yud Hey vav Hey comes along and says, I am Adonai, who is about to bring you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, so that you will always remember that I am Adonai, who brought you out of the land of Egypt with a strong hand and an outstretched arm. Yad I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And forever and ever and ever to this day, three plus thousand years later, that's what we say over and over again. We say it everywhere. We say it in our prayer book. We say it in at Passover. We say it all the time. Almost more than anything else. Who's God? Who brought us out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage? It's like one phrase that comes together. And therefore, all of the commandments that come. Really? All of them. So, and that's commandment number one. So when we get the Ten Commandments, that's the opening line, of course. How does God describe God's own credentials? Why should we listen, we the Jewish people, the children of Israel and all the rest, to any of these rules that God's now going to lay down for us to do? There's 613 of them or so, according to Jewish tradition, of course, but literally there's 10, and then in the next Torah portion there's 50 more in Mishpatim. Why should we do all these things? Because I am the power that brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the bondage. Therefore, here's all these things you should do. Don't do this, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this. And you know who I am. I'm the power of liberation. I'm the redeemer. I'm the one who beat the crap out of the Pharaoh. Right? I'm the one who showed who's really the boss, who's really the God. It's me. Therefore, you listen to what I say. That's where God's credibility came. God doesn't say, I'm the one who put the stars in the heavens, therefore, I put that tree there, therefore you should listen to me. It's much more personal. It's like, okay, some power created the universe, it's out there, but no, 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 you were slaves. You know what it's like to be a stranger. You know what it's like to be a slave. And because we personalize it intimately, we personally know what it felt like according to the Torah. Therefore, we pay attention. Because it's that, it's us. It's in our hearts, it's in our mouths, it's in our bodies. It's in our memories, it's in our collective genes, our genetic memory. And over and over and over and over again, we repeat it in every generation, which is how this portion starts. God says, why am I going to do this? Why did I harden Pharaoh's heart? Why am I going to have this big dramatic ending where I kill all these people? So that they'll never forget. It's not so that they'll never forget. It's so that you'll never forget. So that you will never forget and will constantly be reminding your children in every generation that we, you were slaves and with a strong hand and an outstretched arm, God liberated us and therefore we follow what God wants us to do. And we stay who we are, and we don't do what everybody else does, and we don't disappear into them. And that's why in our rabbis march with Martin Luther King. Mm-hmm. Yes. Directly. Yes. It's the um, praying with my feet routine. Of, yes. And that's why our rabbis and non-rabbis started all of these organizations, like the ACLU and things like that, because that's ingrained in the very the very identity of what it means to be us is we were slaves and we went free. And it's one of the things that we, rabbinic commentators point out throughout the centuries is it's counterintuitive 
for people to constantly be reminding themselves that they were slaves. Better to pick out, remember when we were kings? Remember when we were in charge? We're going to celebrate King David, and Solomon, and all those guys. And instead, not that we forget them, but instead, our constant theme is we were slaves, we were slaves, we were slaves, you know, it was like to be a stranger, we were strangers in a strange land all the time. So that, and there's always a so that. And the so that is always so that we have empathy for those who are in that position. We know what it was like. Which is empathy in general, I think. And why do we have to keep doing that? One of my uh, fundamental rules of uh, Torah study, that I'll say again for the 150th time, I'm sure, is if the Torah tells you to do something, it's because people weren't doing it. And if the Torah says don't do something, it's because people were doing it. Because otherwise it wouldn't be any need to tell you that. So the very fact that we're constantly saying, remember you know the heart of the stranger, so therefore treat the stranger in your midst as the homeborn, take care of the poor and the fatherless and the widow and the orphan. The reason that it's repeated over and over and over and over and over and over again is because it's not normal to do it. Left to our own devices, we don't give a damn about those people in general. Left to our own devices, it's all about me. How can I do whatever I can do? That's why instead we say, no, no, no. Remember, when you come into the land and you are successful and you plant your crops and they grow, remember, it ain't you who did it, says the Torah. Remember, it's because God brought you out of Egypt that God did this and God will let God... So take your first fruits and go to God and say thank you. Remember, there's no such thing as a self-made man or woman. Remember all constantly. The only reason it's a constant drumbeat in the Torah is because it's a human nature, part of human nature, is to not do that. Even though kind of rationally, most people rationally their first response is to think, well, it would make sense that if you've been a slave, once you become in charge, you know, you'd know what it was like, and so your natural tendency should be to be kind and generous and whatever. People it's like not. People identify with the, um, the oppressor, not the oppressee, very often, so they wouldn't. Yeah, it's, it's payback instead. People that all of a sudden, you know, were always the underdog and now get to be in charge... They don't, their natural response isn't kindness and compassion necessarily. It's just as often, if not more often, now I can get back to people. Because now I'm in charge. Now I'm going to make you my slave. See what it feels like. And the Torah goes, no, wait, 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 wait. Don't, don't go there. Don't go there. And it says don't go there because that's where people go. That's where people go. So instead we have this this push-pull constantly sent from the moment of this Torah portion on about remembering that we were strangers and slaves and how to treat those who are strangers and slaves, how to treat those literally who are slaves. In Mishpatim, it talks about this whole bunch of rules about slavery, you know, two Torah portions from now, and how you have to, can't abuse a slave and how you have to let the slave go after seven years. and all about because you know what it's like so therefore don't do that because you know what it's like so therefore don't do that because you know what it's like 
You know, and that's part of the wisdom, I always think, the brilliance and the wisdom of the Torah text is that it recognizes, whoever wrote this stuff, recognized human nature. And recognized that it's not enough just to once say, well, you know, be a good guy. Be a good person. No, it's over and over and over and over and over again because that's what, it's that neediness where we started an hour ago. It's back to human beings have these needs from childhood, our fragile nature, our insecure nature, and very often, and so you asked about power, it's the same thing. You know, power is, a, is usually a displacement of the need for feeling important, feeling valued, feeling heard, feeling seen. You know, so you have power. So I can take my gun or my whip or my whatever, and when I'm the boss, I get to be the boss. I'm the boss of you, you know, and therefore I feel important. And important is as simple as people notice me. You know, people know who I am. And I'm not a nothing, not a nobody. There are lots of people in the world who think they don't exist. Literally, don't exist. There's, no, there's nobody feeding back to them that they do. Or that what they say matters. Or that who they are matters in any way. Which is why it's been one of my major themes of life to try to get kids to see that what they say matters and what they do matters and who they are matters. And I think that's what the Torah is about in many ways. It's about inspiring that and teaching that. And um, so, in any event, um, we started with the question of free will because, the, of course, the, this portion begins with the opening sentence of God saying, you know, I'm hardening Pharaoh's heart. And that's always the ongoing ethical dilemma of how do you, how do you ascribe personal responsibility to Pharaoh if God takes credit for hardening Pharaoh's heart. Um, but those of you, which is all of you, who've been in this room, have been through this before and before and before and before and before, um, <clears throat> know that uh, the number one response of the rabbis is always, well, to point out that the first five times Pharaoh hardens his own heart. And um, that was one of the classic rabbinic commentators, Terrorists, is that f- the first plagues, every time Pharaoh's heart gets hardened, it says, and Pharaoh hardened his heart. And only at the end <clears throat> does it say God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Because, uh, and I think I pointed out quoted in this brilliant Torah commentary that I wrote for this week, somewhere in there, where <coughs> it says, <clears throat> there's a Talmudic phrase that I think is, Adam nifal pu'ulotav, which means a person is made according to his own actions. You know, the Talmud's very sexist, so I always use male language. But it's that you are, you are created, you create yourself. Your own behavior creates your own character. And so what the rabbis point out about Pharaoh was his choices for hardening his own heart determined his character. So that what it took for God, quote, to harden Pharaoh's heart was nothing. It was only to allow Pharaoh his own natural attributes to continue and not change it. He didn't have to do anything. He, God didn't have to do anything. 
God's he again. God didn't have to do anything except for let Pharaoh be Pharaoh to harden Pharaoh's heart. Because Pharaoh's choices of hardening his heart and hardening his heart and hardening his heart and hardening his heart created his own natural inclinations to have a hardened heart. So, now you could say, I would say actually, that like in many instances, this was the rabbinic commentator's way of trying to get God off the hook to say that. It happens to be true that at first it does say Pharaoh hardened his own heart, but it clearly says God's taking responsibility for it at the end and saying, I'm doing this, and gives a reason, for a reason. I want to make sure. I don't want, to, I don't want Pharaoh to just say, okay, go ahead and go. Because this is a big cosmic contest, and I want to win. I want to win this arm wrestling. I don't, want, I don't want Pharaoh to go, I quit. What kind of a win is that? I want to go like that. I want my hand on top showing that I'm stronger and I win. And if Pharaoh goes, okay, I quit, what kind of win is that? I want all the way. Like a default. All the way. And that's what this is. It's all the way. That's why we have the ten. And the grand, you know, finale of the most horrible thing that could, you could imagine, which is a child dying in every single home. I mentioned Sa'aka Gadola, a great cry, the great cry of the, of the Egyptians. Why? Because I wanted to make mention of another Sa'aka Gadola, another great cry, which was at the beginning of this story. When Moses encounters God at the burning bush. We have our burning bush here in the room, right behind us, of course, in our arcs, both of them. Moses encounters God in the burning bush. God says to Moses, after God says, Moses, I'm God, take your shoes off because you're standing on sacred ground. Um, I quoted that when I used to walk into HUC barefoot, but they didn't, they didn't go for it. <laughs> I almost got kicked out for going, showing up to the HUC barefoot. I said, come on, it says in the Torah, it's a sacred ground. And go for it. Anyway, um, <laughs> I thought it was clever and cute. They didn't think so. Um, anyway, anybody remember what God says to Moses in that encounter? God says to Moses, I have heard the cry, the tzaka, of the Israelites and remembered my promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give them, they would inherit the land of Canaan. And so now you have to go back and help me fulfill my promise. Go back to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. And that started this whole ball rolling down the hill that ended up with our liberation. God heard a different Sa'aka Gedola. Our great cry of enslavement and suffering. It's, there's a parallelism always in the Torah. The Torah is remarkable. You just have to wait long enough sometimes. But there's, it's the nature of biblical writing anyway. And biblical poetry is based on parallelisms, couplets and parallelisms, this, this. And much of the biblical Torah writing is about what looks like retribution, but it's kind of, a, it's parallelisms that come back. And, and this is one of them. The story began with our great cry and ended with the Egyptians' great cry. And the, our great cry stirred up God's memory to go, oh, I forgot. 
people still back there. I got to get them over to Israel or I won't have fulfilled my promise because here they are, they're stuck in Egypt. Slaves suffering, and I hear their suffering. And so I need to liberate their suffering. And what I love about the whole Torah anyway, and what I love about all these stories is, here's God, who we first meet as the creator of the entire universe, who says, I need to fulfill my promise, go do it. I mean, go do it. It's your promise. <laughs> you do it. Moses doesn't say, wait a minute. It's your promise. You do it. You created the whole heaven and earth. You, got, you need me to go schlep back to Egypt to free people? You, you created, you know, billions of stars and planets and all this stuff, and you can't free them yourself? What kind of God is that? But that's the nature of how we see our partnership with God, this is God's hands. This is how God works, is by what we do or don't do. So God needed Moses to go. God needs the people to walk out of, you know, they don't get Harry Pottered into, you know, wave of whatever and show up somewhere. Or No, more like Star Trek. They don't get Star Trek, beam me up, Scotty. They don't get beamed up to Jerusalem. They have to walk. They have to do it. They have to participate. At every stage, and even Moses, even the Ten Commandments. It's my, what I love about the Ten Commandments story next week. What I love about the Ten Commandments story next week is that Moses breaks the commandments, the tablets that God writes on, and then goes up and writes on his own version, and those are the tablets that we end up walking with, and those are the tablets that we end up carrying, and those are the tablets that we end up being the Ten Commandments, the ones that Moses actually writes down and not that God wrote with God's own finger, because it's us that brings God into being in this world in anything that way that's meaningful to people's lives. That's always, to me, the message that's there. And it's clearly the message in this whole liberation. God does all these things, but the people have to be inspired enough to literally get up and walk out of slavery, and walk out of their enslavement, or it doesn't happen. And not everybody left. And and the... Tradition is that you know only a small percentage really left. Most of them stayed behind. Anyway, who leaves? Look at all of you. Here you are from some country. If not you, your parents. Some of you literally. If not you, your parents. If not them, they're your grandparents or great-grandparents. They all came from somewhere. Everybody didn't follow them. Most people didn't follow them. Wherever town they left, most people stayed. Small number of people are always the small number of people who are willing to get up and go to the foreign land and the foreign country where they don't speak the language to start out on their own. It's a small number of people, and it was, according to the rabbis here too, this Hamushim, they said, a fifth of them maybe, a small number of them followed Moses to become the Jewish people. The rest of them are too afraid. Better the slavery we know than the unknown. Stepping into the unknown is always scary. You know, and that's one of those other underlying themes of Torah. It's a small number of people who make everything happen in the world because they're willing to step out. The Nakshon step into the water. They're willing to take the step. You got it. That's courage, faith, whatever. You know. The same the same terror of the night inspired some people to leave and other people to hide under their beds. Say, I'm not going anywhere. It raises the yes. question of whether people would have left at all if God had not hardened <coughs> their heart. Right. 
Heart and Pharaoh's heart. Well, the other thing is that that um, very often and I was going to have you read it, but you know me, I just talk anyway. The uh, um, it often takes adversity and a hardening of circumstances for us to to act and react. Also. To, it takes drama, it takes dramatic things to happen, it takes hardship, it takes challenges for forward motion to happen in the world. And for people to have, you have to have things to overcome too. And, and there are those who suggest that that's the purpose of our, of our collective enslavement. Look what it's done. It's been the running theme for thousands of years. It's pretty important, this enslavement that we experienced. And triumphing over enslavement and experiencing that the natural state that we're supposed to live in, according to Jewish tradition, is freedom and not slavery. But you can't do that unless you're a slave first. Right? That's sort of growing up. Yes. And then we should end. Just on a more personal level, <coughs> when I mm. think of this, these kinds of stories, <coughs> I wonder what I would have done. Mm. And I thought of that a lot this summer when we took that cruise on the Danube and being in that area. Yeah. Would I have put my life at stake for somebody else? Right. And um, you don't know. You don't know so until it happens. <clears throat> you know, all the stories and, and one of the things, you know, the, the knock on the door and you open the door and there's a person there. And you, you close the door, you open the door, you let them in, or you say, you know, go away. Um, and most of the stories, most of the studies, anyway, all the few that I've read uh, about uh, rescuers in the Holocaust and righteous Gentiles and um, questioning about, you know, why did you do this? Why did you put your life in danger? Why did you take in this child? Why did you take in this family? Why did you do... Uh, it's like the book thief, you know. Uh, great movie. I thought they did a great job. Um, and the number one answer that everybody gave across the board, the number one answer, 99% of the people who were asked of every kind of, every religion, whoever they were, of why did you rescue this person was, how could I not? How could I not? It, it was, they were there, and how could I not? Well, how, you, of course you could not. Most people said no. <laughs> but that person, there was no no as an option. It's, there was a person there, of course. You know, of course how could I not? It, was, it wasn't a conscious, let me think about, weigh, what are the options? If I take them in, I'll, I'm putting my life in danger. Should I do this? Should we flip a coin? Should we have a vote? Should we put the yes, the positives and the negatives? It was, how could I not? You know, it was that kind of a natural, automatic, when the time came response of how could I not?